You're listening to a Thames Estuary Partnership podcast celebrating London's famous tidal river. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talk of the Thames. I'm your host, Chloe Russell. And welcome to this two-part episode of Life Under the Thames. This episode brings you with us to an estuary edge to discover what life is hidden in the water. Today we are doing fish surveys and we are joined with TEP Data and Training Manager Wanda Bodner and fisheries expert Steve Colclough to walk us through the whole process of fish surveys. I hope you enjoy this first part of this special trip in the field. Unless there's a huge amount of fresh water flow in the river from heavy rain, it just sort of sits there for about half an hour. And it's the tide coming in starting to balance the fresh water flow trying to get out. So it just does nothing for about half an hour. It's slightly later than that, and in fact, if you look just upstream, there's a lot of stone there in the river. See the V shape on it. Facing that way, the tide is already pushing in that way. But because we're on little bay here, it's slightly protected from it. So I'm just going to run this out in a little semicircle and come around. That's the technique, that's the theory. Mm. It should be good to come straight out, but I'm going to use a rope first just to get out to the, the depth I want to get to. You might think a tiny net is only 15 metres long. Fish aren't silly, they don't like strong tidal flows. So it's little back eddies, they're sitting in here. At least the smaller ones. We are at Battersea Reach, just east of the mouth of the River Wandle. And we are here to uh, visit an estuary edge site, and we are actually in the middle of a fish survey to see how fish actually utilize these sites. All of those fish are younger the year fish, which is classic for an estuary. But uh, as is sometimes the case, we've just found something new to science, because one of those is a little baby Xander, is an exotic, it shouldn't be here. We know it's in the freshwater Thames. Last year we found a few down at uh, Point Wharf Greenwich. It's the first one I think that's ever been reported from the Middle City Reaches. They do like estuaries, so we're going to see more of them. Can you tell us, what are estuary edges? Right, so the UK government guidance on biodiversity requires now riverside developers to protect and enhance the biodiversity in their schemes, particularly focusing on priority habitats such as mudflats, um, salt marsh and reed beds. And a way to do this is by the creation of these man-made vegetated uh, intertidal terraces to soften the hard built-up edges of the estuary to improve the environment both for fish and other wildlife. At the moment there are 17 estuary edge sites between Dartford and the River Wando and these sites were built between 1997 and 2012. Perhaps the most well-known is the one at the O2, the Millennium Terraces, that was built in 1997 
And there, what's interesting that actually the developer allowed 10 meters of its land to be given back to the sea. And so that's where those uh, reed beds are running uh, parallel with the, with the riverside. It's quite long, a few, few hundred meters actually. But in terms of just finding about all of these estuary edges a bit more, there's a dedicated website, uh, which is estuaryedges.co.uk, which gives an overview of, uh, of the estuary edge design principles as well as, the, as, well, as, well as detailed uh, case studies. And the idea is that we do like maybe three of these. And then afterwards we can, uh, afterward, it's all in a bucket now and then each, each seine netting would get, it, get their own bucket. And then in that way we can uh, identify all the fish and just make a note how many seine netting we've done, which, which catch had which kind of species, etc. What's the significance of the estuaries? Why are they so important? So basically in the last 2000 years, the Thames estuary area uh, got built up extensively. We modified it, we straightened and narrowed down uh, the river channel. And with that, we stripped away important habitats such as salt marsh, seagrass uh, and reed beds. And in fact, the Thames uh, used to be a much more marshy and dense, densely wooded uh, system with many small channels and islands. And these channels and islands basically provided an opportunity to, for fish to actually hunker down and wait for the tidal cycle, not get washed away. But we don't have these anymore. In fact, uh, only around 1% of the tidal banks are natural and that can be found at Sion Park. And so the riverside area in London is made up of mainly vertical concrete walls, which are predominantly there to conceal the sewer system and also act as a flood defense. And so these walls provide very little opportunity for migratory fish to actually be able to hang on to it and not get washed away by the tide. And so putting these vegetated areas in is actually uh, really helping the, uh, these, uh, these, these creatures, especially those that uh, move through the estuary at one or other stages of their life. And of course, these habitats carry a lot of uh, so-called ecosystem services. So ecosystem services are those that us, uh, the human society, actually benefit from. This includes the slowing down of the river flow, um, also reducing the flood risk, which is something that uh, London will have to deal with in the future. Uh, and they also act as a carbon capture and sink. They improve water quality and, of course, uh, provide a nursery ground for, for, for uh, fish as well. And, of course, for us, um, it, it, these sites are, are making the visit of the, of the Thames Estuary more accessible and attractive. And as you highlighted in that episode last year, the Blue Mind episode, where we all learned that actually being near water is really good for our mental health and well-being, coming down to these, these vegetated areas, just sitting by it, looking at the river, it, we, all, we all benefit from it, really. This is designed around looking at small fish in the margins. Um, no single method will show you everything. They're all showing you something slightly different. But this is a good general one for young of the year fish sitting in the margins. 
And another interesting thing is why they're sitting in the margins. That baby bass has been born somewhere in the Southern North Sea. He's probably eight, ten weeks old. He can't swim very well. He just knows what the tides do. Uh, a lot of Londoners don't realise high water, throwing a tennis ball at um, Tower Bridge. It goes down 13 kilometres. It comes back 12 and a half on the next flood. That tennis ball takes three months to go from Teddington to South End, and little fish know all about that. So instead of having to swim against the tide, particularly if you're a flounder or a benthic species like that, or the common gobies who were born near Canvey Island as well, they sit on the bottom while the tide's rushing out. As soon as the tide starts to lift, they just get into the flow and do a 13 kilometre surf. High water, they just sit on the bottom, wait out the next step and do it. So they're using these foreshores as a series of stepping steps. And it's these sort of surveys that have demonstrated for the first time that's how they're actually doing it. Before that, we didn't know how, say, a baby flounder that's that big was at Teddington only six weeks after it was born. They are very clever. Yeah. I think we're all wondering, when you say fish, what sort of fish are we talking about? The Thames estuary is a very dynamic environment. We have fresh water coming down from upstream, from the tributaries, and we have the sea coming in twice a day as well. And so we can sort of distinguish between uh, different zones based, uh, based on the salinity of, of the water. So roughly from uh, Teddington, which is the tidal limit up to roughly down to here actually to Buttersea is fresh water and then below that roughly down to Greenwich is brackish so it's a bit of a mix of fresh and salt and beyond that is going to be salty water and so basically a lot depends on the amount of fresh water that was coming down. So for example the last couple of days were quite rainy so we might find fish uh, or we have found already fish uh, which which tend to be freshwater but, but also those who are tolerating all kinds of salinity and so the season can also be something where different uh, fish species would be found and also the tidal cycle. In 2017 there was a fish survey here where uh, the main, the three main species found were the sea bars, the common goby and the European eel. And then we already done our seine netting here this morning. And then we found, again, we, have, we found sea bars, we found roach, dace, free-spined stickleback, uh, pike perch or zander, uh, flounder as well. These are just off the top of my head at the moment. So there's there's quite a few that we found. So we're just gonna move this stuff a little bit closer to where we can them, and then we can process them, so thank you. How do you carry out the fish survey? What's involved? The, the, the first thing you need to understand is how the tides are moving. Um, as Wanda has just said, the fish are moving with the tides. So you have to understand how they're moving with the tides to work out the best time to sample them. Uh, what we generated during the 1990s for what became the Water Framework Directive was a standard sampling methodology where you go to a particular beach at low tide, nice clean gravel beach, and you use one method called a seine net, which is a curtain of netting, um, which you lay out in a semicircle from the shore and pull it in. That tends to catch some of the medium and small size fish which are swimming in the margins. Uh, we then used to use a small beam trawl off the back of a boat 
Um, now those methods still go on for Water Framework Directive, but what we're doing here as a citizen science approach is something slightly smaller, but still with the same same idea of a multiple method technique, using a 13 meter seine which, which net, which has very small three millimeter mesh, walked from the shore, and then we set three fixed nets in the intertidal vegetated habitat. Now these intertidal, these uh, fixed nets have wings attached to them and we face them up the slope. Now again, we need to understand how the fish use the site in order to catch them. Uh, fish come not just up the river on the tides, they come up the margins as well, coming from the deeper water into the margins to feed. And the vegetated margin is actually their preferred habitat. So we now know that intertidal habitats with vegetation are the prime habitat for the early life stages of species like sea bass. They can get away from predators, they can get into shallow, warm water, lots of refuges available and lots of food. So these fish come in on the tides to get into these areas. As soon as high water turns and the water starts to retreat, the fish get onto the bottom and get out quickly. So if we set these fixed fight nets, we call them, with their wings facing up the slope and put them in the right place, as the fish come in, they ignore it. As they turn to leave on the ebbing tide, they tend to get caught in our nets. All the fish we take are um, captured, measured and identified and then returned to the water. Most um, published textbooks have very good library pictures of the adults. One of our challenges here is we're dealing with very small specimens of certain species. So for example, although most people could identify an adult sea bass if they buy one of the fishmongers, it's literally a bar of silver. A baby sea bass smaller than about two and a half centimetres in length looks nothing like that. It has a completely see-through body with a black edging to it. So you might think you're looking at something completely new. So what we've done with colleagues in ZSL and elsewhere is amass a whole series of photographs of different life stages and put them into an easily accessible guide. But even then, if you've never seen these species before or seen that guidebook, it is difficult to identify. And particularly when fish are very small, as I say, with the sea bass and with other species, they don't necessarily look like the adult version at all. So we've got the free, we had the free same netting and then each of the samples had their buckets. So we got the buckets lined up knowing one, two, three. And then he's just going to get some things. So we will fish out the fish. <laughs> um, and then individually identify them the species to species level and then measure them uh, and then also count well the counting is at the end but counting also counts what happens when you collect all this data what where does it go afterwards so we, we note then everything we can do, so we, we measure the fish, we identify the fish and then we count the fish and then we house it at, at the Thames Estuary Partnership and of course we share it with our partner organisations which are in case the Port of London Authority, the Environment Agency and the Institute of Fisheries Management. And then secondly, we use it to actually demonstrate it towards developers how and what kind of fish species are actually using these sites, highlighting the fact that these are ecological uh, these sites are are beneficial when it comes to the ecology of the river. And we we found sea bass um, 
during the survey this morning. And uh, seabass is a commercially important species. And the Thames estuary is actually the largest seabass nursery in the south of England. So that's, uh, that's, that's just an example of highlight the ecological value of these sites. I think for everybody wondering, besides fish, what other wildlife can you get around estuary edges? Sure. I mean, Steve, do you want to just say some other examples of fish before I go on to that? Oh, other examples of fish, yes. Um, well, from the freshwater background, we often find roaches we saw today. I think we found two small bream today as well. Uh, perch is another species commonly found in the inner part of the estuary. And with the more estuarine species, smelt is a classic one that runs up the river to spawn at Wandsworth in uh, April, May each year and then spends most of its life in the lower estuary. Uh, we've seen a flounder today, but in the lower estuary there are all sorts of other flatfish species like plaice and dab. Um, some of the shark species like dogfish and uh, starry smoothhound will come into the lower parts of estuaries as well. So estuaries are a great mix, basically, of everything. Uh, most of them are freshwater uh, in this part of the river, um, but estuarine species will come up here. Marine species tend not to come much above the city. They want a bit more salinity than they find up here. Um, and this is all highly seasonal. I think Wanda touched on this before. Some of these fish migrations are very seasonal indeed. At the moment, the bass fry migrations are on, and we will see multiple waves of bass fry coming from different spawning sites in the Southern North Sea. They're all about between 15 and 30 uh, millimetres at the moment in size. By the time they get to about eight, eight, uh, 80 millimetres in, say, October, most of them will be right up at Teddington or Richmond. It starts to get a bit wetter and a bit colder and they drop straight back to the estuary, lower estuary. So that's what estuaries do. They're major nursery grounds, but they're migratory corridors as well for a huge range of species. Other than these fish species, of course, um the Thames estuary is actually home to over th uh, 300 species of invertebrates, 96 species of birds, the three species of mammals, which are the harbour seal, gracile and the harbour porpoise. And of course, uh, Steve already mentioned the shark species. Um, the Thames being part of the global ocean, of course, uh, it's no surprise that we can have sharks here. These are, uh, there's, there's three species that I would highlight. is the taupe, one of them, the starry smooth hand, which uh, Steve already mentioned. These will, um, these will commonly feed on crustaceans. And the spardug or, or the spiny dogfish, which will, will actually feed on small flounder plates and also small crustaceans. Excellent. Well, a big thank you for both your contributions today. It's been a fantastic day out and we hope that you've enjoyed it as much as everybody listening. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this short sound capsule of what it's like during a fish survey. And join us next time for the second part of this episode of Life Under the Thames, when we speak to Steve Colcler more in depth about his 40-year career in the field. You can expect to find out his career highlights, challenges, and how he keeps up to date in the field. Again, thank you very much for listening to this episode, and we hope you've enjoyed it. This episode has been brought to you by me, Chloe Russell, on behalf of the Thames Estuary Partnership, and we most look forward to welcoming you next time. Bye for now.